Welcome back to the God Story podcast, exploring the big picture of the Bible to bring us back to the gospel. Today, we're up to episode 23. Well, art and visual art particularly has been an important part of God's story, but what do we make of modern art? Many Christians struggle with the modern wing of an art gallery, and what's the role of the arts in the church anyway? Well, today's guest has thought a lot about these issues. Cameron J. Anderson is an artist, associate director of Upper House, and former executive director of Christians in the Visual Arts. Prior to joining Christians in the Visual Arts, he served on the staff of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship for 30 years, most recently as the National Director of Graduate and Faculty Ministries. He's the author of The Faithful Artist, A Vision for Evangelicalism and the Arts, and the co-editor of Faith and Vision, 25 Years of Christians in the Visual Arts. And he's one of the editors, together with G. Walter Hansen, of a new book from InterVarsity Press, IVP in America, called God in the Modern Wing, Viewing Art with Eyes of Faith. Cameron joins me from the States today. How are you, Cameron? Doing well. I'm very glad to be with you. Why are the visual arts so important for Christians? Well, first of all, we live in a culture right now that is so visually dominant, right? And it's as, it's as though... Um, we've caught up with the medieval ages all over again, right? So, I mean, there, there was a time in the world when um, most of the world was not literate. They didn't read and write. Doesn't mean they weren't intelligent, but they just didn't have the skills. And then Gutenberg Press and other things came along. We became a kind of print dominant world, at least intellectuals and elites did. Uh, but now with social media, we've come back to this intensely visual world that is really marked by spectacle every time we turn around, isn't it? I mean, every moment on the screen is a spectacular moment. Um, so if, if we don't understand visual culture right now, we're at a tremendous disadvantage if we just are going to only try to be people of the book. And I am a person of the book, um, a lover of the scriptures. And I hope a student of the scriptures, but we have to be students of the visual world too. In the medieval and Renaissance church certainly understood the uh, sensational moment in visual art, didn't they? They sure did. And um, uh, there was a way when, you know, a cathedral was decorated and the work went up on the walls. Uh, the, the term for that uh, back in the day was Biblia Paporum. It was the Bible for the poor just assuming again that many church attenders were not literate and um so we would have the story of the bible depicted on the wall brilliantly right so i don't think we're returning back to that exact moment but um word image moving word and digital technology is really changing the way we think i mean it's an epistemological shift really isn't it about how do we know what we know? Um, and so, of course, I'm an artist by training. That's what my academic degrees are in. And I'm just very much drawn to the making of things. So, yeah. Has, has the modern church lost the sense of the visual, do you think? Well, I mean, in one sense, no, because we're awash in the visual every day when we're out in the culture. But I, I think the visual arts, especially the fine arts, we require um, 
a certain kind of contemplation that um, we're not at all good at anymore. When we, um, I should tell you a little bit, I think you'll be interested to know how this book came into being. Um, sure. My friend, Walter Hansen, um, who's a biblical scholar himself, he and his wife, Tarlene, would worship at Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago, big city here in the U.S., right? And they would have this experience on Sunday morning of meeting God in the sacrament and in the word and the singing and all the rest. And then they would walk a mile south on Michigan Avenue and go visit um, the modern wing of the Art Institute of Chicago. And Walter would have this experience here and Darlene often a feeling like he was meeting God in the modern wing as well. So how could this be that um, he was having one kind of experience with God on Sunday morning and then on Sunday afternoon in the art museum, having another kind of experience. And as he explored that more and more, he had the sense that these two things were connected, that they weren't binaries but that they are connected to each other. So anyhow, fast forward, he, he invited me to help him put a lecture series together at his church in 2015. In November, we had four lecturers. We did it again in 2016, in 2017. And then um, all these friends of ours who gave these lectures, uh, we, we approached University Press, could this be a book? And everyone turned their lectures into essays. And that's the story here. Hmm. Yeah, what's so alarming about the modern wing of an art gallery anyway? <laughs> well, is it alarming? All, it's never been alarming for me, particularly. <laughs> well, I, I, I think that if, you know, you were hoping to go there and find peace and comfort, you might find the images <laughs> arresting. Of course, there's going to be a lot of nudity, but it, um, but it's not the kind of nudity you might see in Renaissance paintings that seem very tame and kind of tempered. You'll find things that are more grotesque. You're not going to find a lot of easy religious symbols to absorb. So then I think the question is, well, what is this all about? And then I think there's the awkwardness, if you're not familiar with modern art, say, of, well, how can I understand what this means? Because it's not representational. So there's not a lovely landscape here or a church with a cross on a hill or uh, or even the depiction of a biblical story that I'm familiar with that say Michelangelo might have painted right in the Sistine Chapel. So there's a, a bit of unfamiliarity there and um, I think that can make any of us uncomfortable. How easy is it to find Christian or any religious art in a modern wing of a gallery? Well, it's it, that proposition is not an... Um, it's not just sitting there for the picking, right? It, um, so one of the things that we, and a thing and a, and a feature of the book that became a theme is that many of us wrote about artists and artists' work in the modern wing that we admired, right? So Makoto Fujimura wrote about Rafko, or I wrote about Constantine Brancusi and Erbelto. Alberto uh, Giacometti. And, um, and so we were intrigued by these people and then writing and speaking about, writing about them and speaking about them um, led us to do some research to see, well, you know, are there religious roots there? Are there spiritual connections there? And, and so, you know, if you do the work on Rothko, an abstract painter, um, 
you discover that he's on a, a profound existential spiritual quest to encounter some kind of transcendent reality. You know, he even says at one point that, you know, if you find yourself standing in front of one of his paintings and weeping, then you're having the same experience that he had when he painted it, right? And so, um, and then there's, of course, a lot of tragedy in their lives too. But, but what, what it turned out is that um, we're led to believe and even taught, you know, when we, when we study art formally that, you know, modern art is secular and it, it, there really isn't any sense of God or spiritual questing in it. It's, it's just a secular project. Um, and then it turns out when you explore the lives of these artists and their work that there's deep spiritual longing. And even if there's a whole scale rejection of religion and maybe inst especially institutional religion, there's still these deep spiritual themes mm. uh, shot all the way through. Yeah, we talk about modern art, but when did modern art come into being? And why, oh, well, did, it, you know, and why did it come into being? Yeah, that, well, that, that, that's a, gosh, that's a big question. Um, the, the first chapter in the book actually is an introduction that I wrote called, called Being Modern. Um, and, and so it really tries to take that on. Um, so folks are going to date this differently, but there's a sense that uh, coming out of Romanticism, you know, at the end of the 19th century that... Um, modernism followed on the heels of that and you know you start out with impressionism and german expressionism which comes a little bit later um and and um and then you really enter into this modern period and and then that goes clear through the second world war and then into the 50s and 60s and that's kind of the end and you move into contemporary art or kind of postmodern period. And there's no clean, hard lines here, but, but one of the social realities and political realities that shapes modern art profoundly is World War I and World War II. And just the incredible inhumanity of man to man, right? And, and the, the despair that comes out of, of that kind of carnage and that kind of violence. Um, and in fact, Dadaism came right up out of that. I mean, just the sense that, that language could no longer explain the human experience. Words were inadequate. And so then you, you move into abstraction um, as a desperate yet kind of creative way to respond to a world that's in despair. Um, that's not the only story, right? But. But World War I and World War II figure very profoundly in this. And, and the center of modern art actually moves, you know, from Europe, uh, from places like Paris um, to New York after the war. So. Yeah. How is the rise of modern art also connected to the philosophy of Nietzsche? Because you write about that in the book too, don't you? Oh, I, I really do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, um, that's, that's part of the introduction of modernism. And, Nietzsche is an important figure philosophically, but aesthetically also. And, and he grew up in a religious home. His father was, was a pastor. And um, he just felt like the old religion uh, couldn't sustain his vision for the new world and life that he wanted. And 
Um, the life he wanted was going to be a deeply aesthetic life, a deeply experiential kind of life, and in a life that that was unbounded, that was going to allow him to be free, um, to really become the Uberman, a, a new race of of humankind. And he thought, you know, that the arts were really going to be the spiritual center of this, not the liturgy and the creeds and the doctrines of the church. So at some point he said, you know, God's dead. Uh, that old way of religion is dead and we're going to have to find something new. I, and, and so I think that invitation to freedom, to, to free creative expression is something, of course, that the modern artist grabbed hold of and, and ran with. Yeah. Why, why were modern artists so concerned to establish a new concept of the self? Well, I think the lure of personal expressive freedom was very strong. And, you know, until then, in many ways, successful artists were always beholding to patrons and the patron, the church was the largest patron and then the court and people of wealth. And so um, you were making art in service to patrons who had an agenda that was maybe quite different than yours. Let's say you didn't believe in the God of the Bible at all, but you were a painter and needed to make a living. And so there's a church, go decorate it, right? I mean, it's not quite that simple, but, um, but, but, but yeah, I think, I think that um, personal expressive freedom is really the, the value that undergirds much of what I think modernism is about. Now, you know, that's problematic in an interesting way for those of us who are Christians, right? Because we actually are created as free beings and we have an incredible amount of agency. And, you know, from Genesis 1 and 2 on, we're invited to enter into the world and be makers of things. And, oh, by the way, the God that we follow, the first thing we learn about him is that he's profoundly creative. Um, and we're told that we're bearing his image. So like we have no choice almost, but to go out and make and create because it's, it's, it's right in our DNA. Right. Um, um, but then I guess the question of arts purposes is what does change is constantly changing. What is it for? Mm. In what sense were early 20th century artists genuine ears of the romantic movement? Well, part of what romanticism did is it, highlighted the role of the artist, right? So the, um, the artist was a spiritual seer, maybe a spiritual leader, uh, maybe a savior, actually, a cultural savior. And that idea is still deeply with us, you know, in, in a world in the West that's becoming increasingly non-religious or more and more people checking the box and saying, I'm a nun, not N-U-N, but a non-religious person, um, uh, the art museum and gallery still feels like a very spiritual and transcendent place. A few a handful of years ago, I was thinking about actually being in the Art Institute of Chicago and on a Sunday and people were, you know, kind of dressed up, maybe not jacket and tie, but dressed a little bit better than on the street. There was a hushed silence in the place, people talking quiet, quietly, quietly. Uh, looking at things reverently and uh, and taking their time to contemplate. And I thought about the kind of worship experiences I was having in those days in a church, that, you know, really a fine church that I was attending with 
a loud worship band in front and you know ripped jeans and carry your starbucks coffee in and everything moving very quickly so we wouldn't lose our attention right and i mean just the you kind of set that up right as this sort of study in contrast and feel like well gosh um you know looking at Cezanne paintings in the quietness in the hush quiet of a museum feels more sacred and transcendent than what just happened in my church experience and maybe maybe, maybe even possibly is i think you know i think our book is exploring that kind of stuff um, yeah, how can Christian artists today carry that sense of the transcendent back into worship in the church? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, so I think the good news these days is that um, probably when I was much younger than I am now, I'm approaching 70 now, but in my 20s, and having grown up in the conservative Protestant church in the U.S., um, I would have just been hard pressed to find a church that had any interest in the arts at all. Now in a city like Madison, Wisconsin, there'd be five, six churches that I might like to attend and pastoral leaders and the members in the congregation would actually think that my being an artist was at least cool and a little bit interesting and maybe um, the arts could have something to do with their worshiping community. It certainly does where I attend a um, number of artists. So, so the environment's better. I think that um, I think for the visual arts though to be meaningful in the worship setting, uh, we need good partnerships between artists and, and, and pastors who, you know, want to go out and have the cup of coffee and start talking about what's possible. Um, how, how so can we, yeah, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. How can we as a church draw artists, whether Christian or non-Christian, back into uh, a worshipping community or a sense of connection with worship and churches? I, I have a, a story, a, a fun story that I like to tell about this. So um, years have gone by now, but maybe about 10 years ago, I was um, in an exhibit in town. A group of us had a gallery space and we hung a group show and number of friends from the community came out and at the time we were attending a large church and no less than four pastors from my church came out to see the work and then another pastor friend from another church actually bought a piece of my work but one of the pastors from the church I was going to at the time was standing in front of my painting and we were talking about it and trying to you know he said well you know help me understand this and you know et cetera, et cetera. And we were having really a fine conversation about it. And, um, and then, you know, I, I said something a, a bit snarky. I said, you know, and, you know, it's about time you come into my space and listen to me because I listen to you every Sunday morning. Right. And, and we were great friends. And so, it, it was, you know, I would, of course, the whole point is very funny. And, but there he was talking with me about the thing that I know about because on Sunday morning, I would listen to him talk about the thing that he knows about, right? Um, and so when people say, well, how do we get started? I say, well, if you have artists in the church, just go see their work and, and just spend time with them and ask them 
how they make the things they make and why they make them. And then once that trust is established, a lot of things are possible in the church. Uh, but one of my other experiences over the years is people would say to me, well, you're an artist. We'd really like to use you and your art in the church. And they had an idea for the thing that they wanted me to make that was bordering maybe on propaganda, right? And a certain, I mean, in a way they wanted, I mean, I had, I, I could make a sign, right? Or a poster. So, but that's not, of course, what I would think about doing in my studio. Yeah, I can't understand how we've arrived at the state that we're in now, where when you think about the history of uh, Christianity and the church, the church was the pioneer in the visual arts for centuries. And now we have a situation in many of our, uh, certainly our Protestant churches, where we have no connection yeah. with, with art or artists or musicians at all, apart from the dudes up the front playing the guitar. Well, that's right. And and I, I, I think that, I mean, there are certain... You know, as I've been writing, thinking, speaking on this topic along the way, there reached certain realizations along along the way that are really kind of clarifying, right? And so, like, one of the things that I came to realize when I wrote my book prior to this, The Faithful Artist, um, is that actually for most of human history, across time, cultures, art and religious belief, whatever kind of religious or spiritual belief it is, have been in a dynamic conversation for most of human history, right? What happens when I die? What's the meaning of life? What is it to love? What is it to lose, to grieve, right? All the, what, how do we approach the mystery? These kinds of things. And, and then really in the modern period, in, at the end of the 1800s, and now for about 100 or 150 years, there's been a great divorce that's gone on where the church says, well, we don't need art. And the art world says, why would we want to be constrained by the stuffy old church and its legalism and its irrelevance, right? And um, so then people like me end up occupying this space and we say, well, the church doesn't care about me as the art as an artist and the art world has no interest in my faith in Jesus Christ. Right. And we're left to kind of straddle this space. Well, what's the point of all that saying that? Well, the last 150 years in a way are an anomaly in the West. Mm. <laughs> and I mean, because you still could travel the world and meet a tribe or a person, in another religion, and they're making objects and things that are of great spiritual significance to them. And I, you know, I wonder if we're going to come to the end of this era and, and actually enter into a new period. Uh, there's some signs that in some churches and communities, we really are. Yes. Uh, is, is there a way back for the, for the church and art to reconnect? Well, I suppose in one way, we never get to go back on these things, but, but, you know, one way that the art, that the church could demonstrate that, it actually thinks that art is important is that it starts showing up in their budget and in their annual plans, right? Mm -hmm. um, so like I, if I go to a church on Sunday, I'm gonna be, I mean, with some strange exception, I'm gonna expect the person who's preaching on Sunday morning to be theologically trained. So he, she is going to have a graduate degree and have studied the Bible and, uh, right, and be trained as a preacher. And 
I'm at least expecting the musicians to be able to play in tune, but probably they have a degree and they have formal training. And uh, then when it comes to the arts, all those standards fall away. Like, well, who are the creative people in the church? And would you guys like to make something for us? <laughs> Wait a minute. Who actually went to art school? Who actually is a working artist? Who actually maintains a studio? Uh, right, right. So I, th I think we need better thinking about that. And then um, if we really want art in the church, let's create a budget for that and say, you know, even an installation. Uh, do we have $500 for materials, $1,000 for materials? Or um, do we want to commission an icon or whatever? And that's, artists will notice that. Say, you really actually regard us as professionals. Which you always have been, of course. Right. <laughs> Before we go, I've got to ask you a, a complete digression, really, in one sense, well, and not really in another uh, I was fascinated reading the, the book to, to learn about Salvador Dali, whose work I've always admired, um, and that he actually returned to faith. He became a practicing Roman Catholic at some point. How did that That's come right. about? Well, I don't, I, I can't recount how that actually, what, what the events were that led up to that. But there is an interesting movement among other artists too that, you know, in their youth, if they sort of forsook or stepped away from religion, some of them came back to it and had religious renewals and experience. I mean, Andy Warhol's a fascinating character. Mm, yes, I was fascinated to read about him. He yeah. grew up in a devout Catholic home. People say that he still went to morning mass often all through his life. And I don't know if this is legend or true, but that actually didn't feel but he didn't take the sacrament because he didn't feel like he was worthy of it. Um, and then, you know, the biggest body of work he did at the end of his life was of the last supper and um, hundreds of reproductions of uh, Da Vinci's work um, of the last supper, um, which were at the end of his life exhibited by the way, in the lobby of a bank, uh, pretty much just across from uh, the sacred space where uh, Da Vinci's original uh, was painted as a fresco on the wall, right? So, um, and then that was the last work that he did, that he, he could not step away from that. So, you know, what can we say about Warhol and, you know, his, the status of his soul? We don't know, um, but yet that big story that big Jesus story was, he couldn't step away from it and he had to engage it as an artist in the way that he could. You know, and that's after doing, you know, serigraph soak screens of Marilyn Monroe and Elvis Presley and Chairman Mao and all kinds of pop figures. But, you know, in the end, it's the Last Supper. Yeah. Do you have one or two favorites modern works that you'd like to share with us and direct people to? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so one or two. <laughs> <laughs> it's, well, an it's an impossible question, I know, but... Well, in a way, in a way it is, um, but um, I did write about 
Giacometti and Brancusi. And um, Giacometti was a draftsman, painter, sculptor, but these uh, tall, elongated figures that he made, sometimes as individuals kind of leaning ahead and kind of walking, I find them to be very haunting and very poignant um, pictures of modern expression. I'm, and they're beautiful in a way, you know, I, I don't know if I'd want to live with one. I mean, I'd probably like to own one, but I might just take it out from time to time because I, I think existentially they're, they're, they're so powerful. And, and some of them were made very small and miniatures, but then others kind of life-size. And so, I mean, that, I'm just always, I've been intrigued by that. And then uh, Brancusi was a wood carver and uh, learned to carve wood in Romania and, I love the physicality of his objects, the carved wood, the carved stone, these abstract um, pieces that he makes. And there's one of his pieces called Bird in Space. And it's, it's, uh, it's just a slender bird-like figure that rises up and, you know, in, in polished bronze and just points to the heaven. And so when I spoke about these two artists, one of the things I, I, I talked about is the way in which Giacometti was, his work was grounded. They had these heavy bases and was sort of fixed to the ground. And, um, and then the contrast with uh, Rancuzzi's work pointing to the heavens and to the space and onto eternity. So I like that visual kind of setup, if you will, and was intrigued by it. And, and it did, did make me think about uh, the incarnation, you know, the God-man who came and dwelt with us and was grounded and, and knew all our sorrows and at the same time took all his instructions and signals from the Father in heaven where to the place that he ascended, right? So th that experience of leading us toward the transcendent at the same time. So I don't know if that, I might've forced that kind of reading, but, mm. I, but, I, but, I, but I liked that very much, yeah. Mm. Cameron Anderson, one of the editors together with G. Walter Henson of this new book just released uh, yesterday as we do the interview uh, from InterVarsity Press in the States called God in the Modern Wing, Viewing Art with Eyes of Faith. It's a beautiful read. Uh, full of wonderful essays, which will make you think, they will challenge you, they will make you want to go to Chicago and see these artworks. Very good. Uh, not that we can at the moment with uh, with the way the world is, but I would dearly love to be able to actually see some of the artworks that are written about in the book face to face. So Cameron, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com. Godstory Podcast.